Uh, would you open your Bible today to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? This is, this is such, a, it's such a blessing to me for uh, sharing together today as, as we returned from quite a journey, and we so appreciate all of you that have been praying for us as we traveled. Lord, the, the, the blessing of God in our time together was rich and strong, and um, I was so blessed by Justin's message last week, and I know you were, and uh, I want to give appreciation and just ask you to thank, join me in thanking Justin for ministering the word to our congregation last Sunday, and uh, just, just thanking the Lord for that. We, um, there, this, this passage of scripture that we're going to look at brings us into a place where the Apostle Paul was actually experiencing exactly what Justin talked about last week. I was really struck by the fact that as Justin was describing the um, times that all of us will encounter at some point of deep discouragement and even on the edge of feeling totally overwhelmed, uh, when we go into the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's quite striking that the Apostle Paul was exactly at that place. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is a, is a great introduction to something that has been on my heart in praying about how we discover here in our walk with God the power to overcome and the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit. And I, I think of it as covenant keys. First of all, there is a key to staying free in these first four verses of 2 Corinthians 3, but the entire chapter gives us... Um, a, a window into the plan of God for what we think of when we talk about the new covenant. Now, the new covenant, obviously, is at the heart of all of the things that are given to us by God's grace. The new covenant, described in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is God's plan for the shaping and forming of our hearts so that we can be aware every day of the dynamic working of the Holy Spirit. It's quite interesting that this chapter begins with the Apostle Paul describing the internal working of the Holy Spirit as being the, 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 the writing of God's truth in the fleshly tables of our heart, and it concludes in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3 with the working of the Holy Spirit. The dynamic, powerful working of the Holy Spirit in every person's life. And I want to read that 18th verse first because uh, we won't get to that until two weeks from now. So I want to, I want to get to that today as a, as a starting point and then back up here to the beginning of this chapter as we think about covenant keys in the life-giving, dynamic work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in every person's heart. Now, we can think of it individually. All of us need to experience anew the meaning of the new covenant, but we can also think of it as a congregation, a congregational sense, that this is what defines the, the new birth and the new birthing of congregational life, people that are sharing in the adventure of following Jesus and being worshipers together. So look at that 18th verse of 2 Corinthians 3, because it gives us kind of the, this is the, the, uh, the, the fullness 
of this working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people that, uh, that the chapter unfolds for us as we learn about what the new covenant really means, the golden, solid gold keys of the new covenant. So 2 Corinthians 3.18, I'm reading to you from the New International Version, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here's a, an illustration. Like looking in a mirror, when you look in a mirror, you see yourself. But this text tells us that God, in a way, has a miracle mirror. And that is, as we look into the Word of God, and as our hearts are revived and refreshed and refocused on this glory of the new covenant that we'll be looking at for a couple of weeks, then the Holy Spirit we're in front of the mirror of God's Word, and the Holy Spirit is dynamically working change in our lives. Some friends we hosted years ago uh, that were in a musical traveling ministry wrote their own song about this, and we used to sing it, uh, Charles and Paula Slagle, and the song went, From glory to glory, he's changing me, changing me, and transforming me. From glory to glory, he's changing me. How wonderful it is to be free. And that, that song came right out of this verse, describing this ongoing, dynamic, present tense working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now, now that's in itself notable in that this is a like looking in a mirror, but looking in a mirror where transformation is taking place. I don't know about you, sometimes we look in the mirror, we'd like to do, see that happen <laughs> in a different way. But no, this is talking about the Holy Spirit working in us. Amen? So, so that's kind of, that's, the, that's where the chapter brings us to the Apostle Paul's describing on into the fourth chapter the, the, the tribulations and trials and adversities that buffet upon the souls of those who serve God. But this 18th verse of chapter 3 is the key to why, even in the midst of great difficulty, we know that the Holy Spirit is working in us. So with that in mind then, I want to think a little bit, go back to the top of the chapter here, and think about this, this chapter, the third chapter of 2 Corinthians, kind of as a whole for a few minutes, to think about the fact that uh, we, have, we find ourselves in, in an epistle, in a book of the, of the Bible, that gives us more than any other single book of the New Testament, uh, incredible insight. In fact, if you, if you step back from it a little bit and think about it uh, in terms of other parts of the New Testament, it's remarkable of how much of the raw difficulty and the raw emotion and internal working of this human being that God chose, the Apostle Paul, to carry the advance of the gospel into Gentile regions to show all of the ways, humanly speaking, that he was impacted because it is in this, um, in this vortex of trouble that Paul's experience of the new covenant becomes a kind of living object lesson. 
in parts of this book, in the, for the 11th chapter, for example, it's almost astonishing the long list of trials and adversities and, tri- and, and situations that Paul went through. And the purpose of writing them was, was not in any way to draw attention to himself. It was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit actually giving us um, a window into how powerful the Holy Spirit's work is in every person's life. So when we think about what it means to be born again, and we realize that when we come to Christ and say, Lord, I give my heart and my life to you, I receive you as my Lord and Savior, and the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 11 that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, it tells us in Ephesians 5.18 that we need to continually be praying to be filled with, to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. In all of those ways, the dynamic, present tense power of the Holy Spirit is working in us. And, and here, the object lesson of the Apostle Paul is to show us that there can be a whole wide range of adversities that all of us are impacted by, and that we can face honestly, and we can face with um, awareness that God understands. Uh, one description of um, the Apostle Paul's epistle here, his writing of this letter, uh, by J. Sidlow Baxter put it so well. He said, this letter is Paul's heart outpouring epistle, written with a quill dipped in tears from the Apostle's anguish of heart, Yet, there's a brightness beaming through as he describes the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And from the first verses of chapter 1 to the last verses of chapter 13 of this epistle, that, uh, that, that pervasive sense of the contrast of the human, the real human challenges uh, and, and the the present tense, powerful, dynamic working of the Holy Spirit. And so to to think about that as as a part of our own life, this chapter then takes us to a view of the plan of God that is spoken of often in passing, but rarely do we pause to look at what does this mean, the new covenant. What is the new covenant? What does it mean to us? What, is the, what, what did Jesus do to initiate the, the new covenant? And what does that reality mean in terms of how we face adversity and challenge and even our own weakness and, and our disappointments? Uh, a humorist well-known some years ago by the name of Robert Bixley was a student at Harvard. He arrived at his final exam in international law to find that the test for international law consisted of one question, like this big essay test. And the question was, discuss the abstract of the international fisheries protocol and dragnet procedures currently under arbitration as it affects A, the point of view of the United States, and B, the point of view of Great Britain. And Bixley stared at that question realized he had no earthly idea how to answer it. In desperation, he said, I know nothing of the point of view of Great Britain in regard to the arbitration of the international fisheries problem and nothing about the point of view of the United States. 
I will therefore discuss the issue from the point of view of the fish. <laughs> well, really, the new covenant puts us in a vast ocean of God's great love. And Paul is giving us, side by side with him, the view of the fish. The view of what it means to swim in the vast ocean of God's great, redeeming grace. So we might think of it like this, that, that the letter of 2 Corinthians, all 13 chapters of, of 2 Corinthians, is kind of a is, a, is one of those parts of the New Testament that, that takes us deep into the, the vast and pristine ocean of God's redeeming grace, while also accenting the compassion of Christ to all of us in our times of weakness and in whatever situations we face. There's something fascinating about the depths of the ocean, and one of the highlights for Becky and me in this Gulf Coast stay was that uh, just seeing again and thinking, as we all do, when you, when you go to any ocean scene, and you just see the vastness of the ocean, and, the, and in the Gulf Coast, we're especially just always just so delighted by the, the pristine, crisp, the clear aqua water, and the, uh, just, just how appealing that is just just right there on the on the on the beach on that level and then you look across the horizon and in the in the, it's sunset time and you're glancing across the horizon of the gulf and you're just thinking about you can't even wrap your brain around how much cubic space there is in the ocean it's just so vast well it, there is a real sense in which the the new testament and all that god's grace brings us is so far beyond what a human brain can contain, that God gives us in Scripture many different, I think of them as portals. In fact, it's kind of interesting, this particular place we stayed at, at, in, uh, in this trip had these portal windows on one side of the building so that it wasn't just a blank wall. So you're walking down the hallway and you're looking at these little portals like, like the portals of a ship. And I thought about the fact that when you look at the new covenant, God is giving you a, a portal view into the vastness of redeeming grace. Hold your place in 2 Corinthians 3 and uh, go with me uh, to Titus chapter 2 and find it in your own Bible. It's, it's just after the two letters to Timothy, First and 2 Timothy and then Titus. And then go to that, um, go to that um, 14th verse of Titus 2 where, again, the magnitude of this gift of grace that some of you that are listening to me right now received when you were a child maybe came to Christ. I did. I received the Lord Jesus as a 10-year-old child and had a very troubled middle school years and very difficult early teens and uh, came back to the Lord, recommitted my heart to the Lord, and was filled with the Holy Spirit in a, in a way that was life-transforming for me when I was 15. But I go back to the age of 15 then to a, a full whole heart commitment. And some of you go back to 12 or 13 or, or 20 or 21 and, and, then, and yet there may be someone here today and you've just came to Christ recently and you've come to know him and know that saving love of Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. In the new covenant of God, the space between when one believer came to Christ and be another is eliminated 
it, it matters to live the life, but in the eyes of God, the, the, the privileges, the benefits, the covenant inheritance that God promises is the same for all. In fact, Jesus told one of his most interesting parables about that very fact, that regardless of when you came into the kingdom, you can be sure this great inheritance of the redeeming grace of God and the dynamic present tense working of the Holy Spirit is for you. And I asked you to turn to Titus 2.14 because I think it says it in a way that helps us bring it down to where it affects daily life in a very uh, shoe-leather kind of way. Titus 2.14, for the grace, I'm sorry, 11. My eyes are missing these digits here. I had reading glasses down the hall and didn't bring them with me. Uh, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, first notice the magnitude of the grace of God that God has said the grace of God is not just a static thing. It's moving. The grace of God has appeared to all men. He's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ and his death, his sinless life, his incarnation, his sinless life, his, his ministry on this planet, his death, burial, and resurrection. So God in person brought salvation. God didn't just send a book about a better life. God didn't send an angel with a flaming sword saying, follow me. God didn't send a theory. God didn't send a philosopher. God didn't send poetry. God didn't send art. All of those things can reflect the goodness of God. But God brought salvation in person. And it says that it was so great that it's even now active. Notice the present tense verb of Titus 2.12. It teaches us, that is the grace of God that brings salvation, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So not only did he come in person then, hallelujah, he's coming in person again. Praise God. So this, this, this kind of a quick, um, you might say, massive summary of the plan of salvation in Titus 2, 11 and 12 complements this fact, if we think about it this way, that God is giving us an insight into, thank you, thank you, Job. What a blessing, I tell you. I am so loved and blessed, I can't even, can't even begin to count the ways. So God is giving us this with... Uh, with the understanding then in Scripture that he brought it to us in a way that's really surprising. Now, I want you to go back to the first verse of 2 Corinthians 3. That was so kind of you, Joe. Thank you. I have to put it on when the small digits come out. But, uh, but I want you to see now, this is an example. The reason I'm sharing this is that, that um, the new covenant is at the heart of, of how, we, how we experience the, the fullness and the blessing of walking and, and, and growing in the grace of God. And, and this is a little surprising. This chapter begins with an emphasis on correspondence. Now, it sounds like almost dull, boring, like, well, what does that have to do with me, Pastor? But think about it like this. One of the reasons I want you to see the, the vastness of the grace of God uh, expressed in 2 Corinthians is that Paul now zeroes in on a realistic issue in 
addressing doubt and discouragement and confusion among Christians. Remember that the Corinthian church, when we say Corinthian church, sometimes that's things like that are used for like shorthand. But remember that Becky and I just went through a very long traffic jam in Atlanta, by the way, and it's vivid in our brains. And, uh, and I was joking with my brother on the phone the other night. I said, uh, I've got the full Atlanta treatment now. Now I understand. And, and so Corinth, Corinth, though, was like a, 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 twi- a first century Atlanta. <laughs> you know, Corinth was not just one church. Paul the Apostle in Acts 18 had, had spent 18 months in the city of Corinth during an 18-month time period, Paul the Apostle had done, first after suffering a lot of persecution at the beginning, but then through the hospitality of um, one of the synagogue officials who had come to Christ, Paul spent 18 months of in-depth teaching of God's Word in Corinth. You can read about that in Acts 18. And when he did so, he did it so that that they would be grounded in such a way that they could do what he later said to Timothy in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. He said, keep the deposit of sound teaching. And that 18-month foundational time period for the Apostle Paul in Corinth established a foundation for rapid growth of people sharing about the Lord Jesus Christ with their friends and their neighbors and their co-workers, and the, 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 the good news spread like wildfire, and the Corinthian church, as I said as shorthand, for churches, for across the city of this very uh, cosmopolitan and very uh, kind of a nerve center city right there at the, at the uh, coast of the Aegean Sea, this was a seacoast city, it was a place where merchant vessels came in and, and sailors and, and business people got off the, uh, out of a long voyage at Corinth and it was known for its prostitution and its, uh, the kind of lifestyle that catered to the, to the traveling sailors. This was a place of great um, uh, cross-currents of both cultural issues, of, of idolatry, of, of Greek mythology, uh, great, great emphasis on athletics and the, the Greek games. It was a center for the training of Greek athletes. And into that city, this 18-month time period of the Apostle Paul is like a laser beam of God's grace bringing salvation to all. And those who heard, their lives were made alive by the grace of God. And they got foundational teaching, but Within about three years of Paul's departure, there was controversy that, again, naturally is a part of the process of churches growing up and developing. And what's really striking here, again, is the side-by-side, there's human problems, along with these wonderful, gracious promises of God. Think of the inheritance that, uh, that God's Word tells us we have in Jesus Christ. In, in the resurrection of Jesus, Simon Peter explains it in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, you have been given new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance. 
that is incorruptible and undefiled and that never fades away. Reserved in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1, 4-7 tells us that in heaven you have an inheritance that you're already drawing down benefits from. And the new covenant is the total package of these great benefits. And that's why Paul invested in such a way that the Corinthian churches would be anchored in sound teaching. So vital that they could, that they could get that. Why? Because he knew that these adversities would come. He knew that there would be those who, like him, would have to dip their pen into the inkwell of tears. And he wanted them to understand that this personal grace of God coming in salvation to show us his heart, that this is an ongoing process of us learning to look to Jesus. That is, the covenant God gave them enabled them to do what this text says, and I'd like us to say this aloud together. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This tells us that you and I are actively on a journey, and that you and I are going to encounter obstacles that would tempt us to get off track, to lose sight of the magnitude of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And when, so when we think about the new covenant as it, as it is presented here, then what we see is that these letters became essential. Now, I come back to the letters and think about this in light of something that's probably not often talked about. Why do we have these letters? Why does it matter that we have these letters? And when you think about it, you realize we take for granted the fact that we hold in our Bibles written permanent records, not only of, of, of truth that was preached, but of the lives that were lived alongside the reality of that prevailing truth. We also have in these permanent records, in these letters, the experiences of people who laid their lives down, literally, and in some cases were at risk of laying their lives down, so that other people could read the letter. Now, in an email age, in a Facebook age, in, in an instantaneous Instagram age, we, we have trouble, don't we, thinking in terms of the value, the long-term value of a written document. And, and it's tempting just to breeze over it in church and think, oh, yeah, we know about all that stuff. Yeah, let's, let's get to the good stuff. But, but wait, let's step back. Let's ask, why did God do this? God could have chosen to give his gospel at any era, we know at Christmas time we often think about the fact that the Roman world uh, was, was the timing of God in bringing the birth of Jesus when he did and the spread of the gospel in the first century has a lot of fascinating interconnections with what was changing in the world of the Roman Empire. Just for one example, that in the days of the Apostle Paul, 
uh, the kind of travel that they were able to do on the, on the Ignatian Way, the great, what they called the Roman uh, Road of Commerce, that, that could not have happened about 300 years earlier. They didn't have that kind of capacity. The, the, transportation was improving. Communication was improving. We have much evidence in the New Testament of how these letters were transmitted one to another. Turn again to Acts 15. It's the second reference on the screen. Look at Acts 15.25. It's a great example of what I'm talking about. And, and though we take it for granted, the fact is, had God used an Instagram age, or a Facebook age, or a Twitter age, or whatever, then we would not have, all of that would have vanished. And, and, I was, and as you look at Acts 15.25 and 26, you see that this was not just a small thing. This came at great cost at great human cost. In fact, some of the adversities the apostles experienced was because they were needing to get the letters written. The inspired Word of God was literally like grace of God bringing salvation and bringing it right to your doorstep and bringing it through the mailman. Hallelujah. In Acts 15, 25, Paul becomes one of the mailmen. Look at this. This is so cool. In Acts 15, 25, there was a controversy that was very intense. It created sharp disputation in Jerusalem about how they would cope with the new Gentiles coming to Christ and receiving salvation and what kinds of uh, relationship they should have to the law that the Jews were accustomed to following. And a lot of that was hashed out. And God used that controversy, just as he uses many different difficulties in life, to birth something new that had never happened before. And Paul becomes one of the messengers of a letter. Literally, Paul becomes a mailman. Not only a tent maker, not only a former Pharisee, not only an apostle, not only a servant of Christ, but a mailman. Yes, look at Acts 15, 20. Two, then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Then they go through and explain the controversy and if you zip on down to verse 25, you see that as they mentioned the controversy that had to be resolved for all the new believers, they said this in Acts 15, 25. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read 26 aloud with me. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the value of the letter that we hold in a printed Bible today, or in a tablet, or on an iPhone, the value of that letter was of such inestimable significance that Paul and these men risked their lives to see that others would receive that truth. And you and I benefit from it today. Now, as I got to thinking about this, I remembered in Romans 1.13 that Paul said, I, I, I want to be with you. Remember, book of Romans opens with Paul saying, my, my goal was to come directly to Rome, 
but I was hindered by all these circumstances. Now, in the big scheme of things, we're the beneficiaries that Paul couldn't get to Rome. Because in Romans 1.13, he says, So because I couldn't come and be there in person, I'm writing these things to you to tell you why I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this, this is a window into the vast ocean of pristine, wondrous waters that Paul swam in. He was giving them, in written form, access to something you and I would never have known had it not been recorded in a document. I noticed a couple of years ago, um, two of many of my favorite historians, but two of my favorite historians are David McCullough and, uh, and Doris Kearns Goodwin, and both of them have made a similar comment. When they wrote their books, when, when David McCullough wrote 1776 and John Adams and Truman and, and uh, The Path Between the Seas and all those wonderful books by David McCullough, who just passed away just about six months ago, by the way, Dave, Dr. McCullough says that uh, his uh, great discovery, his greatest joy in all the years and years of research that he did on people like John and Abigail Adams was discovering their letters. And, and um, McCullough said this, Doris Kearns Goodwin has said this, and other historians have said this. What will it be like one day, the way communication is now, when so much less is actually being committed to writing? And what a treasure it was when you opened these letters. One of the most fascinating things was, was reading the account of Doris Kearns Goodwin, finding a whole trove of letters that no one had ever even opened, a whole that had been found and had been stored in the life of Teddy Roosevelt. So the, the, the value of a document then becomes a part of the story of the New Covenant because God gave sovereignly these opportunities so that uh, they, would, they would be transmitted. Now, back to chapter 3, verse 1, though, Paul mentions a special kind of letter in 2 Corinthians 3.1. He says, now, they're used to writing letters and they're used to this kind of Pony Express, you might say, uh, you know, means of, trans of communication. And now Paul is addressing one of the causes of his adversity, and that is that by the time this letter was written, um, there were people who had begun to challenge uh, whether the Apostle Paul was truly the man to believe. And, and he starts this chapter by saying, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And then he says this, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts. Now, in correspondence, it's common even now. It's still common, but it's, always, it's a time-honored practice that you would write a letter of recommendation for someone. I just grabbed an example from 1918 of a recommendation of a soldier for a, a new assignment. And it's true even now in email and in instantaneous communications. But Paul is saying the actual outworking of the power of the new covenant is that 
the born-again child of God who believes in Jesus and begins to walk with God and read the Word and grow in the Spirit, you become a living letter. Let me put it a different way. Each of you in this sanctuary today, in a sense, are a letter of recommendation for believing in Jesus. You're a walking, living epistle. A letter of recommendation for believing in Jesus. And when you think about it like this, then you understand that in these next two verses, the Apostle Paul is explaining that there are two different ways that you are a living letter. The first one is that your life is being looked at, he says in verse 2, by everybody. So, some people have summarized this by saying, you know, the old saying, I think it goes back to uh, Athanasius, um, and it was, tell the good news of Jesus to everyone, and when necessary, use words. <laughs> well, that, that's only a part of the picture. But what the message is, look at your life and realize that there's something dynamic, present tense going on, because God had already promised long ago that you would become this living uh, message bearer of the good news of a risen Savior. And then notice uh, what it is, what is the instrument that is, that is writing upon this tablet? What instrument is being used? Well, the Spirit of the living God is writing a message. Read it aloud with me if you would. You are a letter written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God? Are you to tell me then that, that God's love for you is so personal and so strong and so powerful and so lifelong that the Holy Spirit is actively today, friends, Writing. There's a writing process going on. And, and, and here's a way to bring it down home. When you're struggling with something that has hurt you deeply and you're tempted to blame or you're tempted to be angry or you're tempted to uh, retaliate, the decision, I will choose by faith to forgive the offender, is the Holy Spirit writing something into your heart. Proverbs chapter 19 says that it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense, but a hasty person will be rash in his reaction. Can the Holy Spirit affect our quick tempers? Can the Holy Spirit affect our wrong words? Can the Holy Spirit affect our instinct to defend ourselves or to react in a harmful way? Oh yes, not only can he do it, but if we know, that's part of the new covenant. Praise God. You mean, you mean to tell me that in a place where I have often made a mistake, in a place where I've often done the wrong thing, you mean to tell me the Holy Spirit is actively involved in my life? You mean to tell me the Holy Spirit can come along and write a new script in your heart? Yes. Read the text again once aloud with me here and say it this way, personalize it, I am a letter, 
I am a letter written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Now, we, it, when I say I am there, we, we might hesitate and say, oh, that sounds, that sounds audacious. But it would be if we were depending on our flesh, right? But it's, we're not. We're depending on the grace. Of, what did we read in Titus? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And he's teaching us. He's actively teaching us, and he's writing. He's writing on, on the fleshly tables of our hearts because it is God's intention to give us the second part of this living epistle, and that is to help us realize not only is that writing taking place in transforming grace, but the writing is showing us that, that God has given us a new covenant that lifts us to a place where the standard of righteousness has never changed. God's truth stands eternally. But the way of purifying the hearts of people is now in a whole new sphere. That is, transforming grace is, say it with me aloud if you would, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, just got a couple minutes left, and I want to share an easy mistake that can be made about this, this text because it misses the point. Erroneously, some people have looked at that and said, oh, oh, that's a, okay, it's not of the letter, it's of the Spirit. So that means that the, that, the, that the Word of God written is not what's important, it's what I feel about it. You guys hear me? This is a common error. Oh, it's not the letter, it's of the Spirit. But actually, in the context, what the Apostle Paul is referring to is not a dichotomy between print and feeling or written truth or eternal truth and feelings or emotions. No, the contrast is between the old covenant, the letter, and the new covenant, the Spirit of God working in hearts. How do we know that? Very quickly, we know it for one reason, because it's exactly what the prophecy about the coming of the new covenant was all about. Now, this is very brief, I promise, but this is helpful as, as, a, as a launch today, okay? That is, the new covenant that I've been talking about now, this morning, is not only this vast ocean of the pristine, clear waters of God's Wondrous grace that he invites us to swim in and enjoy. No, it's not, all, it's not only that. It's also the fulfillment of a great promise. About 600 years, around 610 B.C. when Jeremiah got this, God said it explicitly in Jeremiah 31. He said, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. Shout out new covenant with me. New covenant. I will, God said it 620 or so years before the birth of Jesus. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the distinctive difference is 
to jump into Jeremiah would be to say, I'm going to put my law, I'm going to write it into their very hearts. Instead of it just being the letter, I'm literally going to pour, I'm going to write on the human heart with the quill pen of eternal power. That, is, that means you and I, now when we jump back to 2 Corinthians 3, we see that, that this could never have happened. This could never have happened except for what Jesus did on the cross. See, the, the, the heart of all of the new covenant is what he says when he institutes the communion meal. This is my covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. Why? Because he says here in John 12, 30, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was destined to die. So how does this new covenant, how does this, what is the difference in letter and spirit? Remember, it's not the difference in, in say, print or feelings. It's not the difference in objective truth and what I feel. What I feel, God cares. How many of you know God cares what we feel? Amen? How many believe that? But God cares about our feelings, but we're not governed by our feelings. And our feelings have no authority over us. And the more you grow in the grace of God, the more you realize, hey, my feelings are real, but they don't have to determine my action. I can be, a, I can be guided not just, not just by some wooden, dutiful response to a rule book, no, but by responding to the present tense active dynamic working of the Holy Spirit. Letter versus spirit is not print versus feeling. Letter versus spirit is the old covenant versus the new way. And he explains why that was so important in Romans 7 when he says, Now we're delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve, read these four words aloud with me, in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That is God's way of bringing about this wonderful gift of salvation is to literally write it into our hearts, the gift of the Spirit. So as we pray, I'm going to ask that God would give each of us a new, a new joy and discovery of these covenant keys. Lord, thank you for the covenant. Thank you for the cutting of covenant that the Lord Jesus in the shedding of his blood fulfilled that Abrahamic covenant in the cutting of the covenant. The, the very blood our Savior shed initiated this new covenant where, where transformation is not of the letter, not of the old way of depending upon law and ritual and regulation. No, it is the newness of life in the Spirit that came because our Savior was raised from the dead. May anyone here today who would just say in their heart, I need grace to overcome. I need grace for change. May they today say yes to the new covenant.